Welcome to your Truth Revealed podcast, helping you be your own mental health expert. I'm Eric Marcoux, and with a master's in counseling psychology, I share with you the power of self-knowledge. I interview industry professionals to explore your hidden physical and mental health potential. You're listening to episode 34, Know Your Brain Neurology. This is the second part of an interview with neurologist Diego Tobar Quiroga. Specializing in seizures and epilepsy, he explains that often people are bewildered by the symptoms that can affect mental health. He provides ways to successfully recognize and treat this brain disorder. We talk about the brain, the heart, the gut, the spinal cord. So much that happens automatically in the spinal cord that you're not aware of it. Inside of the spinal cord, you have clusters of neurons that can create movement individually, not necessarily driven by the brain. When you have muscle memory, all this is happening in the spinal cord. Diego completed medical school in Bogota, Colombia. His residency was in New York City and his fellowship in Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic. He is a certified neurologist at Austin Epilepsy Care Center and is dedicated to treating and diagnosing people with seizures and epilepsy. Listen as Diego and I reveal the wonders of how your brain and nervous system function and explore how epilepsy manifests along with innovative ways to heal. In previous talks with you, you talked about epileptic seizures and non-epileptic seizures. What are the difference between the two? Excellent question. So when I was explaining what is an epileptic seizure, I talked about these electrical abnormalities flowing through networks in the brain. When I am diagnosing someone with epileptic seizures, I perform this test called EEG or electroencephalogram. And it's basically recording of brain waves. When someone is having an epileptic seizure, you can see in this test the electrical abnormality happening at the same time of the symptoms. When people experience non-epileptic seizures, the difference is that we cannot detect these type of electrical abnormalities and the actual process, what's happening in the brain is different. Mm. It's not related to abnormal electrical discharges. How, when you're doing the EEGs, do you provoke an epileptic seizure? There are certain factors that can change the threshold for someone to have a seizure, like sleep deprivation. During these exams, we ask the patient to sleep less. If someone was taking medications to prevent seizures, we gradually decrease the dose to allow the seizures to happen. If someone's having non-epileptic seizures, how do you detect that with an EEG or do you not? The ideal test is performing a video EEG. I have the recording of the electrical activity of the brain and a video recording. My job is to observe what the person is doing, what they do, they can't do during these episodes, correlate that with the electrical activity of the brain. And that combination allows me to determine who has an epileptic seizure and who has a non-epileptic seizure. And people start to learn how these symptoms feel and they understand that these are not going to improve with medications. And it, it's a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's difficult because you could have the two conditions. You can have epilepsy and you can have non-epileptic events. You can mm-hmm. have them both. And it is oh, difficult wow. to know which one is which. This is tricky business. Sometimes it is. <laughs> because I could be over-medicating someone or under-medicating someone. 
How do you treat them differently? Very good question. The epileptic seizures are the result of electrical abnormalities flowing through networks in the brain. When I don't see that in the test, we start to suspect these are non-epileptic seizures. It's not the result of an abnormal electrical discharge in the brain. The treatment, therefore, is also different because anti-seizure drugs that are designed to modify this electrical chemical balance in the brain don't work because mm. the mechanism of the condition is different. Is that how you find out that it's a non-epileptic seizure? Well, sometimes that's one of the main red flags. People okay. who have tried many medications and they don't work, you start suspecting what's happening. Mm -hmm. We don't understand well why and how these non-epileptic seizures happen. They are involuntary. They can mimic epileptic seizures. What we have noticed is the following. I have not seen a case of a patient with non-epileptic seizures who does not have some type of pain syndrome that is not improved. Oh. And pain could be somatic pain, physical pain, mm -hmm. fibromyalgia, arthritis, low back pain, neck pain, headaches are very frequent, you name it. Or it could be emotional pain, mm -hmm. right? I've had patients with very unfortunate histories of abuse and trauma, stress, but for the brain is probably equally painful. And we do know that traumatic experiences do change networks in the brain. So that's been proven. But that's a constant in patients with non-epileptic seizures. There is some type of pain syndrome that is not well resolved. The treatment is not medications. The treatment is figuring out a way of improving the pain, improving the control of the headaches, the back pain, the neck pain, but also there has to be some work on rewiring these networks in the brain. That's when you come in, right? That's this where is, I come in. Yeah, that's the work of a mental health specialist who know all these different techniques to do. It could be EMDR or CBT, all these techniques that could be used for that purpose. And it's therapy. You have to dig deep into how you could respond to the pain in a different way and slowly learn to control these involuntary symptoms. People can learn how to do that. It's such an interesting crossover of what you do and what I do. Yes. And I don't believe I have that knowledge that maybe clients that I have worked with in the past may have had non-epileptic seizures that was causing physical pain and not known it. Yeah. It's difficult to find clinicians who understand this condition because it's a condition that in many ways has been neglected mm -hmm. because the treatment is not linked to any product or any medication or anything that is marketable. It's mental health, but it's not treated with medication. Right? And I'm assuming that it doesn't get a lot of research. It does not for the same reason. Because pharmaceutical companies can't there's profit the, off of it. There's no business in treating these conditions. But it, it's very common. In my practice, obviously, I am biased because I only see people with seizures. About 30% of the patients that I see in the clinic don't have epilepsy. They have non-epileptic seizures. And there is another type of treatment that stimulates a nerve that is coming out of the brain stem. It's called the vagus nerve stimulator. The theory behind how this works is that 
slowly modifies the electrical chemical environment of the brain. It's also used for treatment of mood disorder. Is it regulating the vagus nerve? No, it's using the vagus nerve to conduct electricity on that same loop backwards to the brain. It's interesting that you're bringing up the vagus nerve. I interviewed Dr. Ann Taylor in the episodes Know Your Heart's Rhythm, and this was a huge focus. She talked about regulating the nervous system through yogic techniques, which she says strengthens the vagus nerve and can reduce anxiety. Yes, we don't understand how that same modality sometimes is used for people with depression, but it could help. Mm -hmm. And we, we don't understand specific connections of these cranial nerves well. There's so much we don't understand, yeah. which is also promising that there's so much out there to learn. It's very exciting time, it I is think. exciting. In this interview with Dr. Ann Taylor, she said that when she first started her career, she would do EKGs on the heart. Mm -hmm. And she says that there's more electrical signal in the heart than there is in the brain. Have you noticed that that's true? Yes, there is. In terms of the strength and the power of the signal... Yes, and the way that we measure it, when I do recordings of brain activity outside of the head, outside yeah. of the skull, I need to use amplifiers because the magnitude of that electrical signal is very, very small. When you do an electrocardiogram, you put those similar electrodes on the chest and the amount of amplification that you need is minimal compared to what you need to analyze the brain waves. We have not only the electrical mechanism of the heart, but we also have this group of muscle cells that when they contract, they create an electrical discharge. The movement of the muscle cells happens because there's an electrical current making these cells change. The heart, it's a bigger generator compared to the brain. Again, because I am recording from outside of the skull. And she also says that there's a lot of power in regulating the heart in terms of stimulating the vagus nerve in the right way yeah. and helping to calm the entire nervous system, which then has an effect on brain activity. Yes. And I don't know if there is a explanation of how this happens, but it is true. It is true. When you regulate your heart, you are also regulating backwards through this vagus nerve some brain functions and vice versa. When someone has an epileptic seizure involving networks that control this autonomic nervous system, people mm -hmm. can experience autonomic symptoms. They can sweat, they can feel flushing in their skin. Sometimes people can even experience symptoms in their gut. An autonomic nervous system is automatic. It's not yes. something that we can consciously control. Correct. You can't control it at will. But the brain is driving the function mm -hmm. of this autonomic nervous system. <laughs> when we're talking about the vagus nerve, how it's so important, because that's the brain that actually goes down and gives all this autonomic information to the heart and the gut. And in the gut, we have another peripheral brain called the solar plexus, which is another group of neurons, which is also part of it. But they're all connected. I don't think we understand well in real time how these are interconnected, but they are and they work together. I think this is a more scientific explanation of the mind-heart connection. That it's yes. not just a, a woo-woo concept. It's like, no, no, they're wired 
they're connected. Yes, they are. The system is connected in that way. They are. And it's the first time I've heard somebody talk about the solar plexus in the same light as the heart and the brain function. Are you connecting the solar plexus with the digestive system? Or is it something else? To the digestive system and to some sensations in the upper part of the stomach that are related to emotions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when people experience very strong emotions, they are associated to a sensation. It's not just the emotion. There is a tingling in the upper part of the stomach, the butterflies. The sensation that people feel sometimes with a fear that there is something traveling down the spine. All those sensations have a root in the brain and they're traveling through these nerves and you actually feel the sensation, but it's all coming from the same region of the brain. An emotion is a felt experience. It's not a thought, it's not a concept, it's mm-hmm. a felt experience in your body. Yes, and, and that's part of the work I'm sure you do when you make people more aware of how they feel in their body when a specific emotion is happening. Exactly. For people who aren't as familiar with their emotions, we'll go through an exercise with some real basic emotions. Let's say mad, sad, glad, or afraid. And create a snapshot of what that feels like in their body for each of those emotions. Just to start to develop that emotional intelligence. Because everyone's different. There might be some similarities, but we all experience different emotions in our own unique way. Yeah. And the gut, which I've mentioned in another podcast, is also considered the second brain. Yes, yes. We have four brains, maybe five. (gasps) Tell me what the four or five brains are. Well, we talk about the brain, the heart, the gut, the spinal cord. So much that happens automatically in the spinal cord that you're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Hmm? I think about the term central pattern generators. Inside of the spinal cord, you have clusters of neurons that can create movement individually, not necessarily driven by the brain. Mm-hmm. When you have muscle memory, all this is happening in the spinal cord. There are some functions that are connected to the brain, but they have another big component inside of the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. Hmm? I've often said that our whole body is our brain. And (laughs) what I mean by that, it's not just from the neck up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a big cluster of these nervous system cells in the brain, but we have them everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. How long do you typically work with a patient? How long does this process of diagnosis and treatment last? It's variable. It depends on how often they're having seizures. It depends on how many changes I need to make with the medications to obtain good control of the seizures. Sometimes this is a long-term process. It could be years. That doesn't surprise me. What is some of the neuroscience research that is being done for epilepsy right now? There are many areas of research One area is understanding mechanisms of the disease. At the cellular level, at the molecular level, why seizures happen, how these networks change over time in response to recurrent seizures, because this has to do with the natural plasticity of the brain. Mm -hmm. These networks change over time. Pharmacological treatments, that's another area of research. There is a lot of work on understanding how to improve the types of surgeries and devices to control seizures. There's work on imaging and trying to understand electrical signals to perhaps one day achieve something that nowadays looks very difficult, which is predicting when people could have seizures. 
Oh, wow. Right? There's been a lot of work on recordings of brain waves and see if you can find patterns or see if there's a way that you can predict because that would be a game changer. Because right? if you could predict when it might happen. I could give you a small dose of another medication for a few days and maybe stop the episode completely. Oh, wow. Aren't there dogs that are trained to be able to predict a seizure coming on? Yeah, there was actually a study that looked at that and it didn't go too well. Oh, it didn't go too well? <laughs> no, no, because they had patients with epilepsy in a hospital. They video EEG and paired them with trained service dogs to respond to this. And half of the times they didn't realize that the seizure was happening. There were some dogs that were really good and some really bad at the job. <laughs> I think it also has to do with the specific strengths of the dog, not the weaknesses. Okay, yeah. okay. So that's not necessarily a way that we can yeah. rely on to be effective. Yeah, and, and you wonder, I mean, what the dogs could be trying to predict. They smell a change in some type of chemical that we produce because of autonomic nervous system changes, or are they more aware to changes in voice pitch, or mm. are they more aware of movement or lack of movement? I don't know. Yeah, it right? seems unpredictable. There is also work on wearable devices. Oh. That's also something that would be really good once it's actually working well. Devices to not necessarily predict, but detect seizures in a reasonable amount of time and with good specificity and sensitivity. Mm -hmm. now, there are devices that are in the market that are okay. There is research on how to create alarms that are accurate for people who live alone. And if that does happen, where this device is detecting that a seizure may happen, they could take medication. Yeah, perhaps thing? even earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We talked about devices, about prediction. There's research being done in brain imaging because many times the technology that we have is not good enough to reveal the cause of the epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And it's there, it might be microscopic or very subtle and you just don't see it. There is work being done on using computers to analyze those images. There's obviously research in mental health and mm -hmm. the correlation with epilepsy. Someone who's living in the Austin area and listening to this, how can they find you? People like me work at epilepsy centers. That's where you find neurologists who are specialized in seizures and epilepsy. Mm -hmm. okay. Here in the Austin area, there are two accredited epilepsy centers. One of them is Austin Epilepsy Care Center, and there is the Seton Brain and Spine with the University, Dell mm -hmm. Medical School. They have the other epilepsy center. I know that the symptoms can be kind of nebulous. I'm wondering if someone listening was like, I match some of those symptoms. Yes, these symptoms can be so subtle. Mm -hmm. I would just look for medical attention and try to rule out things early. And like you said, go see your general care physician, and then yes. they would know what to look for. Exactly. Okay. I believe that what you're doing is very important, and I always appreciate talking to people who have dedicated their careers to helping other people live healthier and happier lives. Thank you, Erica, and my pleasure to be able to be here and, and communicate to your audience about the work that we do and mm -hmm. how we can help. Thank you so much. No, Erica, my pleasure. I want to take a moment to talk about free resources that can help you or your loved one manage a life with epilepsy. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, recommends the Epilepsy Foundation's helpline. You can talk to a trained specialist who will answer your questions and link you to resources in your community. 
call 1-800-332-1000. Also, if you want to find an epilepsy center near you in the U.S., visit the National Association of Epilepsy Centers at naecepilepsy.org. Lastly, if you want to contact Dr. Diego Quiroga, go to austinepilepsy.com. Welcome to the bonus segment of my podcast, Your Truth Revealed. I want to expand on some of the main points from my interview with Diego Quiroga. He says we have five brains. And what he means is that there are neurons that transmit and receive nerve impulses throughout your body. This includes your head, heart, gut, spinal cord, and central pattern generators. The most obvious brain is in your head and is made up of 100 billion neurons. Your heart is made up of 40,000 neurons. Your gut is made up of about 500 million neurons. Your spinal cord has about 69 million neurons. And lastly, your central pattern generators control rhythmic movements with circuits of neurons. This understanding helps scientifically illustrate that there is, at the very least, a clear neurological connection between the brain, heart, and gut. The brain is the most complicated organ in your body and only weighs about three pounds. Your brain has three major parts, the cerebrum, cerebellum, and medulla. Scientists have learned more about the brain in the last 10 years than in all previous centuries. The cerebrum is the largest part of your brain. It's in charge of thinking, imagining, and speaking. It also governs our five senses. This includes how you receive sensory information through sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. The cerebellum is the second major part of your brain, which is also known as the little brain. It's in charge of your emotions and learning. It also coordinates muscle movements that include your posture and balance. Lastly, the medulla is the third major part of your brain, which is also known as the brainstem. It performs many automatic functions that include breathing, heart rate, body temperature, wake and sleep cycles, and digestion. These are all involuntary actions. Your brain and your nervous system are extraordinary, and it's an exciting time to learn about its intricacies on a whole new level. There's more great resources like these in the show notes. In episode 35, I turn the mic around. Ashley Braxton from the Happy Choice Podcast interviews me about the importance of self-awareness. This is also the last interview of season two. That's the benefit is being aware of those moments where you're just being. We're human beings, not human doings. We forget that. We have so many distractions and it's our responsibility to connect back to who we really are the fundamental self, which I call the true self. Until next time, subscribe and rate the show. Also tune into season one for more on helping you be your own mental health expert. I'm Erica Marcoux. Thanks for listening.